0: Chapter thirty four of White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty four in the course of the afternoon, she went back to the cathedral and heard the evening service. It was good, it stimulated her ideas. She could think best while half listening to something of an entirely different tendency. The intelligent verger remembering one of her speeches to mr dand on the day they did the complete round together hardly knew what to make of her present devoted attitude her sad self-conscious face had won him she seemed a nice young lady after the service he volunteered to lift the lids of the wooden oubliettes that had been recently made in the stone flooring behind the altar to show the foundations of the early saxon church amy did not care about them but what was the use of rebutting any form of kindness. She idly led him on to talk about himself. He had the civil, hesitating address of an honest, self-respecting man. "'Yes, miss, I used to be a strong chapel-goer. I don't know how, miss, but I seem to get out of touch with them, seemingly. Not that I took my valuable self anywhere else. I don't worship anywhere now. Somehow, miss, I can't tell you. But so long I have been about this here building— and knowing all about its beginnings. Leastways I mustn't say that, but Mr. Dandy tells me, and I listen to every word. I've been verger here now these ten years. Poking about these ear stones and wondering how and when they was placed, and the order of them, so many alterations, it fair puts you out. I don't seem able to believe in anything. His voice sank to a dispirited whisper. I understand how that is, amy whispered too and had the tact to say good evening without offering him a shilling for his lost convictions in the constant study of minutiae the educated verger had forfeited his sense of proportion while considering each stone individually he had lost hold of the idea to whose honour and glory the whole fabric had been raised he had got into the habit of playing with stones as mr dand juggled with words Home she went and had her tea, a fulsome north-country tea, with hot girdle-cakes and a cosy on the teapot. There was nothing meretricious about it, or about her sad, sour, but kindly landlady either. Mrs. Gray, of 20 North Street, was the widow of a railway porter, and had two children to clothe and feed and send to school. She realized that she had secured two quiet clients, who would pay regularly— and to whom nods and winks would be unacceptable they seemed careful people so she was careful of their property she placed the bottle of champagne they had left unfinished in the chiffonier well corked and bottom up so as to preserve the remainder to their use as she explained to the languid amy she was concerned to identify the two napkin rings every day she may have believed that she was entertaining a pair of lovers but she behaved as if they were the stolidest and longest united of married couples. She was impressed by her lodger's two trips to church, where one of her boys had seen her. Yes, she was a very nice landlady, and did not pander to Amy's sense of romance or adventure in any way. And the result of this tame, calm environment was, that except that she had no work to do, nothing wherewith to occupy herself and check her horrid faculty of introspection the abandoned girl might just as well have been living her usual life at home she knew instinctively that she herself was not in the main much changed the curiously resilient creatures women are in the old days when one of her girlfriends had married she had always on receiving a letter dated from heaven alias Paris or Folkstone, in the honeymoon, expected to find the handwriting a little subtly altered. She had always looked for small differences when she met them for the first time on their return. And that she had always been disappointed, she was forced to admit. She herself was another case in point. She was the same Amy, a little less self-confident, maybe, and certainly less arrogant, less lively. A very quiet lady, the landlady reported to the equally quiet friend from next door sitting below stairs, with whom she settled down for a good Sunday gossip when she had removed the tea things in the parlour and swept the tablecloth free of the few crumbs that Amy, hearth goddess as ever, had carefully abstained from making. Mrs. Gray offered to bring the lighted lamp up. This Amy refused, saying she would ring presently, but preferred to sit in the gloaming a while. To tell the truth, the lamp smelt. Tragedy is often spoken in terms of prose. Just before Mrs. Gray left the room, however, Amy raised her head and inquired if there was such a thing in the house as a cat. I can't pet a bowl of goldfish, can I? She said in her pretty, light way that made her social inferiors love her, and the sour landlady eager to procure for her the cat that was not. I am so sorry, miss, ma'am, but the last we had went away. I expect he got himself poisoned in the gardens down the bank, miss. They do put a lot of carbolic down there. It's bad for cats, and we can't keep them more than a few weeks. They all get their death on the banks. You'll ring, miss, if you want anything. I'm quite near hand in the kitchen, so you've no call to go and feel lonely.' Amy was left to the survey of those wild, dank, uncared-for gardens, stretching down to the river under the parapet of the street, with the added distress of possible decaying feline bodies scattered about among the grimy bushes. The evening had closed in early. The heavens had joined the earth in a clammy alliance of ground exhalations and falling rain. The cathedral seemed to loom the vaster, and the more austere, by reason of the concealment of its base by the uprising clouds of rain returning in mists to the sky whence they came it seemed a fabric of unaccountable origin half human amy shivered and perversely saw it not as a beautiful benign conception and performance of the great medieval bishop adamar but as some mighty frankenstein monster sentient malevolent full of the austere cruelty of the ages of faith that reared it. It seemed to her now to be crouching, now drawing itself up threateningly, in sickening alternation. She could fancy again and again that great blind mass lunging forward for some deed of stupid brutality. Like all man-made monsters, it would be sure to be stupid. She continued to stare at it fixedly, and it did begin to seem horridly near, to be coming nearer, ready to fall over her. It was surely top-heavy. What did it stand on? It tottered. Her body swayed in unwilling unison. She must not look at it. The valley, with the river Durin flowing between, that once protected her in a way, seemed abolished. There was nothing between her and the monster she had evolved from her sick thoughts, the chill sweat of the fear of death broke over her. She cast a terrified glance over her shoulder into the recesses of the little room at her back. She was quite alone, the door shut. Jeremy! Where was Jeremy? Oh, gone! She had sent him away! She would not ring the bell for help. If she could not have Jeremy to comfort and sustain her, she would have no one. She dared not take her eyes off the view framed by the window. But she sat quite still, and steadfastly barred the hideous image reflected on her eyeballs, from penetrating to her sense, and so gained calm and a reasonable view of things. She managed at last by an effort of will to right herself, and the feeling of vertigo left her. She was able at last to look at the dumb, inorganic block of masonry opposite unwinkingly. Yes, she stared Adhemar's vast construction down, why it had not moved what a fool she had been for a space but she was all right now she plumed herself on her courage cold and shaking all over as she still was a child would have been really frightened she would have had to draw the curtains and shut it out for arina who was only a child a dear child oh for the dear child's hand in hers her own empty palm ached for the contact she was going to be ill surely she felt very strange pa she would go upstairs to her room and look at her furs which had arrived more than a week ago she had not worn them yet it was too early in the year and the weather was too rainy damp spoils fur all very well but she had a curious fateful idea that she never would wear them at all ill-gotten gains the best thing to do would be to get the coat and put it on now and sit in it a while it was nearly cold enough that would destroy the spell rather a childish trick no she would not give in to it she would wear her furs the first day of october and make a point of it certainly if she were to decide to leave jeremy she would not think it correct to carry the furs he had given off with her somehow People, decent people, always send back wedding presents if possible, when the wedding is put off, or is not to take place. But did she mean to leave Jeremy, and go where cathedrals and all the vested powers of the world might fall on her, and admonish her, and put her down? Leaving Jeremy meant beginning again, and she was not sure that her vitality would lend itself to another struggle with society. She was frightened now, of the forces that are arrayed against the outsider, the wanderer, the lost woman. She was now, in effect, what her enemies would imply her to be, an adventurous, a doubtful character. She had not managed to keep herself respectable. That meant little to her, but everything to most people. It would stand fatally in her way for the future. It would invalidate the bold front which was half her battle, though she had nothing to be ashamed of, she would henceforth have something to conceal. Should she not, rather, cease to struggle and consent to lose her identity by joining her life to that of Jeremy? Should she not, thankfully, accept his love, his care, his furs, and all the rest of it, and give him, give him what women do give in return for an establishment? He would not complain, even if her service was faintly rendered. He wanted her, tell Kel, he wanted to marry her. So much for Jeremy. His intentions were honourable. But for herself, she felt keenly that although the famous blessings should have been pronounced over them, and their contract fully ratified by laws, human and divine, if you like, she would be no better than his heartless, mercenary mistress, accepting the benefits and paying for them in the usual coin, FOR SHE KNEW THAT SHE DID NOT, COULD NOT LOVE HIM. SHE USED A LITTLE TEST. SHE HAD BEEN HIS UTTERLY, BUT SHE HAD NEVER YET KISSED HIM OF HER OWN ACCORD, OR DESIRED HIM TO KISS HER. ONE LITTLE, VALID, BINDING KISS SHE COULD NOT GIVE, AND YET REMAIN A TRUE WOMAN. HE DID NOT NOTICE IT. HE WAS STRANGELY SIMPLE IN SOME THINGS. THE INNOCENT AMY COULD GIVE HIM POINTS. She could be everything to him, a splendid, devoted, faithful mate, while to her he would represent just an anchorage, a hand held out in the world's puzzling darkness, an efficient panacea for loneliness, the loneliness which she felt she could bear never more after this short taste of it. "'Oh, what have I done to be so miserable?' she cried aloud, in savage world anger. "'I have done no one any wrong, none!' No one. Edith is dead. I belong to no one but the man I have given myself to hastily. That's all. I am not wicked. I am not. But here I am crying all alone on a Sunday afternoon in a lodging house by myself. I am calling out for comfort. I who was meant to be with people, comforting them and looking after them. Why did he bring me here? why did he put me into this i am not his i am no one's it is all wrong wretchedly mistaken not me her head declined the heavy plate that crowned it fell forward over her forehead and she did not trouble to push it back into its place but let it helplessly weigh her head down she wept the poor courtesan launched willy-nilly on the wide seas of pleasure she wept for rage for moral isolation in her strange surroundings for uncertainty for the sense of unmerited doom that pressed on her she wept like a child resenting an unjust punishment good mrs gray had not contemplated this briny flood but she had been careful to place an old tablecloth under the bowl of goldfish to preserve her good marquetry work-table so though amy's salt tears fell heartily they could not injure its blurred drowned roses and watery suggestions of leafage the goldfish in the wide glass bowl swam round and round happily they seemed to boo and baw at amy with their oval mouths the weather had cleared a crisp clean evening the flagged pavement of north street echoed with the footsteps of decent burgesses taking their Sunday evening stroll after the rain. The stilled Sabbath voices of good children came up to her, the meretricious woman above, brooding alone in the gathering dusk by her own wish. On the threshold just below the window, Mrs. Gray stood uttering a quiet good-bye to the crony of years who lived a few doors higher up the street, and who had been sitting with her for an hour instead of walking about. As she went away, though Amy did not hear, she mentioned Mrs. Gray's lodger, commenting on her queer fancy for sitting upstairs alone in the gathering dark. No trouble she was, said Mrs. Gray, a nice quiet body. Her name? Mrs. Gray said it was Wilson. Mr. Wilson was away this Sunday. Yes, very clear after the rain. Quite got out. Good night. End of chapter 34. Read by Lisa Reichert